So I've got a smaller podium today so I can see you guys. <laughs> so uh, let me go ahead and just pray for us before we start. God, thank you so much um, for what you have given us. Our, our Heavenly Father, um, we, we just give you praise for all the amazing things that you've done um, in our, our lives. And so we just pray today that um, your will would be done and your kingdom would come, um, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, and I think of um, people in this room, the people in this community, people um, throughout the world um, who are following, uh, following you, who have given themselves to you. And so I ask that you would um, give us today our daily bread um, for those who don't even have that. Lord, um, I pray that you would give us our daily bread. And I pray um, at the same time that um, we would uh, be, uh, that you would forgive us of our debts as we forgive those um, who are indebted to us. And I pray that um, you would not lead us into temptation, but that um, you deliver us from evil. And so in light of those things, in light of the, the prayer, the words that um, Jesus himself has given us, um, we just we thank you for the words that he's given us. And I thank you for the word that you're giving us today. Pray that we would um, be faithful to you. I pray that we would store our hope in you. Uh, pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, that's, you know, something that you hear all the time when you're growing up. Uh, when you're a little kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, something that stood out to me when I was a kid, I used to think, uh, after the words of the prophet Skilo, I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl uh, who looked good. I was taller. I wish I had a rabbit in a hat with a bat and a six form of Paula. I mean, some of those things have come true. I am a little bit taller than I was when I was younger, just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> some of those things have come true. You know, the things that you hope or the things that you look forward to. Uh, some other things that I would look forward to when I was younger, I would always. Think of uh, the careers that people had, right? Um, when I was really young, I used to want to be a motorcycle cop because I thought that was really cool. Uh, a little bit older, I wanted to be a chef because I thought that was really cool. And thing, other things that you look forward to, other things that I would look forward to when I was growing up, uh, marriage, having a family, owning a home, all these types of things that you see grown-ups doing that you look forward to doing, um, kind of just... The American dream a little bit. Uh, these these things that I stored my hope in when I was um, just a little kid. And then I think of the hopes that we have uh, in our culture today. The ultimate end that uh, really communities of people, um, whole uh, corporate identities of people, um, put their future hope that they look forward to. Uh, I think of uh, politically, some people, their ultimate hope is looking forward to the days when we can go back to the way that things were, making um, America great again. Uh, I think of others in uh, our political spectrum who look forward to a new future, better than things were before, um, where there's greater equality and fairness. I think of also outside of the political realm, but the scientific realm, um, people who put their hope in human survival, that the human race would survive and move on and continue to, to exist. And so that's why you have people like Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk flying into space, looking to colonize uh, Mars. And that's the ultimate hope 
that people look forward to is the preservation of humanity. And I think also of the individual ends that some of us look forward to. Like I think of my students. My students are constantly, I'm a teacher. My students are constantly talking about how they want to have a lot of money. That's what they ultimately look forward to. Because I want to have a lot of money when I grow up. Um, they think of, uh, I want to be a professional basketball player when I grow up. And that's the ultimate end that they're seeking to achieve. Um, I think of uh, others, my, maybe my coworkers I used to work with uh, when I was uh, <clears throat> working at a cafe, uh, that the ultimate end would be self-discovery, that I would truly know who I am. I'm working towards understanding who I am and becoming who I am. These are ends that people look forward to. And these ends usually will always um, come with the means that we do to achieve those ends, right? So uh, some of us, with the ethics that we live by in order to achieve those ends, uh, we, we sometimes, some of us will say that the ends uh, justify the means. Um, that I'm going to do whatever it takes to do uh, the most good for the most, uh, the greatest amount of people, right? So, I mean, you might think of the Hebrew midwives in, uh, in Exodus, who uh, Pharaoh commanded that you must uh, kill all of the newborn boys because their uh, population of the Jewish people in, uh, <clears throat> in Egypt was getting out of control. And so these Hebrew midwives they, they just tell uh, Pharaoh, well, we're not able to get to all these, uh, these, uh, these mothers in time because, you know, they're just so vigorous in giving birth. And so is that the truth? I don't know, but they rescued a ton of babies, and that's a good thing. Um, you might think of also Solomon's decision. He goes and he has two women that come to him, and they're arguing about uh, this baby, right? They're saying that, um, they're both saying, this baby is mine. Um, and there is a, um, as they're arguing over whose baby this is, someone's just like, okay, um, I've had enough with your arguing. Let's just split the baby in half. You guys can take your halves. And then the real mother identifies herself and says, no, you know what? Just let the baby stay whole. She can take the baby. It's fine. That's how Solomon discovers who the true mother is because she cares so much about that child's life, that she would preserve the baby's life. And so again, you see Solomon using maybe unconventional means to get to his end, right? Discovering who the mother is. But then on the opposite side of things, uh, you have some people who say, no, the ends don't justify the means. Um, you might think of two wrongs don't make a right. Um, the actions themselves, the ethics that we actually live by, um, the, the way that we present ourselves in life, the, way, the things that we do are good or bad based on themselves, not on the end. Um, that they're working to achieve. And so with all this, we, we're talking about ends and means. Uh, things that we're looking forward to, a goal, a future hope that we're looking, we're aiming for. And then we're also talking about the means to get there. So let's see what God's word has to do with this. Uh, our text for today is from Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 36 through 44, and then into chapter 33, verses 1 through 9. And just to give you a little bit of uh, context before we get into the passage, this is uh, from the 6th century B.C. 
So this is uh, towards the end of the kingdom, the end of the um, of Israel as a kingdom. That's because Babylon has uh, arrived on the scene as the ultimate superpower in that whole area of the ancient Near East. And so uh, Babylon has already at this point come and invaded Judah once. Um, and uh, this is um, uh, when he goes and he invades Judah this first time, he goes and he takes the king of Judah and he says, you're going to be my prisoner. I'm taking you back with me to Babylon. Not only that, but he takes a ton of people, a lot of the, the rich people, the powerful people, the soldiers out of Judah, um, out of Jerusalem, and he's taken them captive with him back to Babylon. And so all that's remaining is the new king of Judah, the new king of Jerusalem, uh, who is the former king's uncle. And this is the king that uh, Babylonian, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar placed on the throne. Uh, and other than that, there's right this this king. His name originally was Mattaniah, changed to Zedekiah. Um, and uh, the basically the poor, the weak, the hungry, um, the people who can't fight, the people who really can't protect themselves very well, are the only people that are left in Jerusalem, in Judah at this time, alongside uh, the prophet Jeremiah. And so it's this king and a bunch of just the weak and powerless people who are there left in Jerusalem. Not only that, but the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has gone into the temple and has destroyed, um, smashed to smithereens the, the things uh, within the temple. So he's um, really shown himself to just bully the people of Jerusalem. Uh, and so uh, we have Zedekiah who's on the throne. Uh, he's the king of Jerusalem at this time, and he is tired of uh, being uh, a puppet to Nebuchadnezzar. And so he rebels against uh, the king of Babylon. He rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And so around this time, Jeremiah, just to give us a little bit of literary context, Jeremiah, whose name is the Lord's appointed one, that's what it means in Hebrew, uh, he warns Judah of the coming destruction. He's been warning Judah of this coming destruction since uh, Josiah was the king of uh, Jerusalem. So years and years, he's preaching this message that Judah is going to be destroyed. Why? Well, because everyone, everyone in Judah is complicit in injustice and idol worship. And so Zedekiah, right, he's this new guy on the throne, he's really annoyed with Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah is the only prophet in Jerusalem who's preaching this message that Israel, or rather Judah, is going to be destroyed, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. All of these other prophets that are there in Jerusalem are going and telling Zedekiah what he wants to hear. He's saying, they're saying things like, you know, your ancestor David, you know, he was very mighty, um, and you know what happened when he faced uh, his Goliath? He defeated his Goliath. And so that's what's going to happen to you. You're facing your Goliath right now, and you're going to defeat your Goliath. Uh, God is going to hand him over, I'm sure. That's what these false prophets are telling Zedekiah. And then they also have an insurance policy on the side. They're like, even if the God of David doesn't come through to you, 
doesn't come through for you, uh, instead what's going to happen is, you know, maybe, maybe um, Ashura is going to come through for you. Maybe Baal or Molech is going to come through for you, these other gods. And so we, just in case, we've sacrificed um, some goats, some pigs, some babies, so that we have a good protection for you. And so they're relying on all these gods and they're preaching, they're telling Zedekiah that you are going to defeat uh, the king of Babylon, that you're going to protect Jerusalem. And so Zedekiah likes that, right? He wants to hear that he's going to be successful. He wants to hear that he's going to um, remain the king for all, uh, I mean, for as long as he lives and that his, uh, he's going to protect Jerusalem. But Jeremiah, he's not going to um, soothe the ears of Zedekiah like Zedekiah wants him to. Instead, he's going to tell him the truth. He's going to tell him God's truth. And so uh, Jeremiah continues to call out the sin of Judah. He continues to say, you all, you leaders, you priests, you prophets, you kings, even all the people who are in Jerusalem, you guys are all complicit in this idol worship and injustice. And he, he even brings up uh, Manasseh, a former king of Israel, of Judah, um, who was uh, Zedekiah's father. He says, because of the sins of Manasseh, God is surely going to bring this judgment upon you. This is going to happen. You know what Manasseh did? Uh, he went down to a place called Ben-Hinnom. Ben-Hinnom. And there he, uh, this is just a dark valley uh, right beside Jerusalem. He goes and he brings um, his own children. He brings the children of other people and he starts sacrificing children to the god Molech. Um, and so uh, Ben-Hinnom, in the New Testament, you may have heard of uh, Gehenna, same place, Ben-Hinnom, Gehenna. This is basically, I mean, like, Gehenna is what uh, Jesus referred to as hell itself. If you want to imagine what hell looks like, he says, imagine Gehenna, Ben-Hinnom, this place where people are sacrificing babies, where it's darkness, where there's idol worship, where... I mean, the most wicked things happen. And that was under the, uh, the father of Zedekiah. His name was Manasseh. And it says that because of this sin, that Judah needs to go into punishment, that they're going to need to be judged for their sin. And it's not even just because of Manasseh. Manasseh was the height of it. But it's been generations and generations of this continued um, evil practices and idol worship. And so getting into... Uh, chapter 33 itself, um, it says at the beginning that uh, Zedekiah was so annoyed with Jeremiah and him preaching this message of judgment that he imprisoned Jeremiah. Uh, in, uh, he imprisoned him in his palace. And so while Jeremiah is in prison, Jeremiah's cousin comes to him, rather, uh, God prophesies to Jeremiah. He says that your cousin is going to come and he's going to try and sell his property property to you, and you're going to buy your prop, uh, buy his property for yourself. And so that actually comes to happen. And so this is proof that um, that the word that God has given to Jeremiah is true, that he, he's saying your cousin is going to come, and the cousin actually does come to sell Jeremiah this property. And what is Jeremiah commanded to do? He's commanded to buy this property. And that's just a bad investment. Right? If Jeremiah this whole time is talking about this destruction that's going to come to Judah, this destruction that's going to come to Jerusalem, and why, why would you buy property in a place that's going to be destroyed? 
right? If you see the invaders are coming, if the invaders are in fact attacking the city right now, the, the invaders are in fact, in fact destroying the city that you're going to buy property in at that moment, why would you buy a property there? Because Jeremiah has a prophecy from the Lord that yes, the judgment is, is going to come. Yes, destruction is going to come, but there's hope on the other end. And that's where we find ourselves um, in the passage for today in verse 36 of chapter 32. So Jeremiah here, he's talking about the city of Jerusalem. He says, now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indig indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. They may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land, of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and thieves shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, and I will restore, or sorry, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Then in 33, it says, For uh, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time, while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you, and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from the city because of their evil. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them an abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And the city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of the good that I will do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. That's our text. And so in this text, I see there's three, three main points here. Um, firstly, in verses uh, 36 through 41, 
the Lord relabels. The Lord relabels. Secondly, in verses 42 through 44, the Lord recreates. The Lord recreates. And thirdly, in verses 1 through 9, the Lord reveals. The Lord reveals. So, uh, that first part of this text, verses 36 to 41. So talking about label, right? If you guys will look to, um, back to that first verse, uh, this is what uh, it says uh, concerning this city of which, of which you say. This is the label that has been placed on Jerusalem. This is what they say about it. It is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. This is the label that they have for it, that it's basically worthless, right? Because it's going to be defeated by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And I think of some of the uh, labels that have been placed on places that I've been. Like, for instance, I grew up in a place called Redlands, and it was really cool for teenagers to call it Deadlands, because Redlands was dead. Um, I, I grew up near a town called Mentum, uh, and people used to call it Bethtum. Uh, I used to live near uh, San Bernardino, and people used to call it San Bernaghetto. Um, and now I live in Southeast, uh, and recently I was looking at uh, some people have made uh, judgmental maps of uh, major cities throughout the United States. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, and so what they'll say is they'll label um, all the different neighborhoods throughout cities. So they have one for Nashville, they have one for New York City, they have one for DC. And so this is the, the labels that they placed on our little sliver of DC. Um, question marks, because nobody knows about Southeast. Nobody comes to Southeast. Um, affordable, uh, Teach for America, and then uh, Guns and AIDS. That's the labels that Anacostia gets. And these are man-made reputations, right? Man-made reputations that ignore God's intentions, right? Is Anacostia only affordable? Is Anacostia only guns and A's? Does that take into consideration what God has planned for Anacostia? Does that take, does Jerusalem's reputation take into consideration what God has planned for the future of Jerusalem. The truth is, is that God has a plan for redemption for Jerusalem. Um, God will gather his people from the punishment. They're going into punishment. This is a reality. This is a reality for Jerusalem. Um, but the future for them is that um, they will be his people and he will be their God. That they will have one heart and one God, and that they will fear him forever. And this will be a generational thing. Not only will they themselves, the captives that came from Babylon, um, but their children too will be a witness to what has happened, what God has done in restoring them. And it will be them as well, that they will fear him forever. And if you look back at that, uh, that part where it says, fear me forever, um, he says uh, that they may fear me for, uh, forever, right? So God is saying that th their fear is not going to go away. And we've been talking about fear throughout this series. 
about what this fear that we're talking about is. Is this just a cowering kind of fear that they're going to um, be afraid that God is going to strike them down at any moment? No, we're talking about a righteous kind of fear, um, not a sinful kind of fear. Sinful kind of fear is just fearing that God is going to strike us down. No, this is a righteous kind of fear that's uh, excitement, that's reverent, that's uh, looking in awe at what God has done, remembering, looking back at all of the good things that God has done. And this is even what Jeremiah talks about uh, the rest of uh, the formal part of chapter 32 of this time where they're thinking back about what God has done in restoring them from Egypt, right? If you remember, God uh, had them, the Israelites, in Egypt for about 400 years, and yet he delivered them miraculously. And so he says, remember this, remember this. Um, and he then goes on to say, Moses goes on to say that you ought to have a fear of the Lord that is remembering back to what the Lord has done. You ought to have a fear of the Lord that is um, giving glory and uh, recognizing goodness of the Lord's testing. And so he calls them back to this fear that they're going to have, not just for a moment, but forever. And so uh, not only this, he talks about uh, the everlasting covenant. And this covenant is that the Lord will not turn away. He will not turn away his face from them. The Lord will place that fear that we talked about in their hearts, right? It's not just that they're going to, it's going to be all on them to be afraid of the Lord or have that fear of the Lord, but really it's going to be about the Lord placing that fear in their hearts himself. Um, and then they will be protected uh, from turning away, right? Um, and it's going to be a celebration that they're going to be planted in this place that the Lord has promised them. And the Lord is going to do this with his whole heart and with his whole soul. And so when we think about the implications of this, um, the eternal fear that is placed in their hearts, right? This is eternal fear, that fear that's not going to leave them, fear that the Lord has actually put in them. We think about um, the fact that he has promised that he's going to create a new label for Jerusalem. That it's not just going to be that they are going to be the people that are being destroyed, but that he has a hope for them. And I think, too, of um, that label that we've placed on Anacostia, that others have placed on Anacostia, and the hope that God has here as well, right? That the Lord knows the label that has been placed on Anacostia. He knows the trouble that Anacostia faces, but he has placed us here in this place for the hope and the restoration of Anacostia. That this place would not just be a place that has these negative labels, but that it has a future and has a hope. And so we are here to, to remind these people, to tell these people of this hope and to ourselves be in this place, to be in Anacostia and living in that hope that uh, Jeremiah is talking about, that the Lord has promised himself. And I mean, how do we do this? It's through these block groups that we have. It's through these PSA teams that we have. It's through being planted here, right? That's what he talks about in this passage is that the Lord will plant them in Jerusalem. We ourselves are planting ourselves in this place to remind these people here of the hope that the Lord has for this place here. Now, looking, looking to 42 through 44, verses 42 through 44. 
So, Lord, he says, I have brought disaster, but I will bring good. And it, again, it continues with this whole theme of the passage that we've already seen. But he says, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. And when you think of this desolation without man or beast, what Jeremiah wants us to think about here is Genesis 1, before the Lord created everything, without man or beast, that it's wild and wasteland, right? This is what Jerusalem is going to be like, like the world was before the Lord formed and filled it. That it's going to be a wild wasteland, and it's going to be in disorder and in need of order, like the world was right in the beginning. And what does the Lord do when he sees disorder, when he sees a wild wasteland that the world is? He forms and he fills it, and that is his plan for Jerusalem. That he's going to recreate this place. The Lord is going to bring order to this land again. That it will be re-inhabited, that God will partner with the people again to multiply in the land and subdue it. That's why he's talking about how the people, these captives, will return to this place and they will fill Jerusalem, right? Like the Lord filled the world with, I mean, people, and he commanded them to multiply in the land, that they are to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And that's why Jeremiah is talking about them going and buying land in Jerusalem this land will actually be worth something again, that they're going to cultivate Jerusalem once again, and that this place is their inheritance. God, all the way at the beginning, he gave his first children, Adam and Eve, an inheritance that was the entire earth that they were supposed to subdue and have to be over, right? Um, he gave an inheritance then um, to Abraham later on, right? That he was going to have this land right? And he again promises this to all the Israelite people as descendants of Abraham, as descendants of Jacob, um, Israel himself, that they will inherit the promise that he has made to them, that they will inherit this land. But it's not just about land, but it's that they would inherit the Lord himself, that that would be their inheritance. And so the Lord, he desired to reform and refill Israel that they would remove idol worship and injustice in this land, that it would be new again. He wants to renew this place, and they would not go and look to other gods like Molech and Asherah and Baal to be their saviors again, that they would no longer commit these atrocities by sacrificing children anymore, but that they would live in obedience and love of the Lord, that they would have this fear, this forever fear that he's placing in his heart, and that's what they would uh, be known for. And so we now, in this place, partner with God now to do this in private and in community. We too are called to subdue and have dominion, that we too are called to fill this place that we live in, that we too are supposed to be representatives of the Lord and not just going and uh, sacrificing to the idols that we might have in our own personal life or the communal idols, idols that we might have but that we serve the Lord alone. And that that would be the reputation that we would have in our personal lives and in our communal lives, in our corporate lives. So lastly, this, this last passage, and I got a few quotations here for you guys uh, for some, from some other passages of the scriptures. And so um, the Lord reveals, this is verses one through nine of chapter 33. He says, call 
and I will answer you. And this harkens back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. So if you want to, you can just write that down in your notes. Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 1 through 6. And so this is the promise that God made. If you, if you don't know, Deuteronomy is written by Moses. God made this promise way, 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 long time ago, before the actual events that we're reading about in Jeremiah. That God made this promise um, that when he knew that the Israelites were going to turn from him and that they were, he promised them, if you turn from me and you start worshiping idols and you start doing what all the other nations around you are doing, I will uh, send, put you in judgment. I will put you in judgment. But when you turn from me, this is where we get into Deuteronomy 30. He says, so it will be when all of these things have kind of come upon you, um, the blessing and the curse, which I have placed before you, uh, call them to, uh, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord has scattered you, just like we read in chapter 32, um, and you return to the Lord your God. He's talking about repentance. When the, when the people of Israel, when they are in their captivity, they recognize the ills that they have fallen prey to, that they would turn back to the Lord. And again, this is what Moses is talking about, this is what Jeremiah is talking about, that you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul in accordance with everything that I am commanding you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you... Uh, if any of your scattered countrymen are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into this land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will be good to you and make you more numerous than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Jeremiah, he's, he's not saying anything that's completely, completely, like he's saying a little bit that's completely new, but really he's harkening back to what Moses had promised them all this long time ago, that when, uh, when they go and disobey the Lord, God will bring a curse upon them, that he will scatter them among the nations, but that when they return to him, when they repent, that he will gather them back to himself and he will circumcise their hearts. He will circumcise their hard hearts. And that's what we're looking for or looking at when Jeremiah is talking about the fear of the Lord being placed in their hearts, that their hearts would no longer be hard to the Lord, but that they would have a soft heart towards the Lord and that they would live in obedience to him. And so um, he says, I will reveal great and hidden things. This is what Jeremiah says. He says, um, destruction and death will come to the city because the Lord has hidden his face from the city. So this isn't just something that uh, is happening to, to the city that the Lord is like, oh, I guess that can't happen. No, the Lord knew that this was going to happen. He appointed um, Nebuchadnezzar. He appointed the Babylonians to actually do this, that they're doing to the, um, the Israelites um, because of the promise that he made to them all the way back in Deuteronomy. Um, and so not only this, he will bring destruction and death, but he will also bring healing to Jerusalem, that he is going to reveal prosperity, and security for the land. That he will bring back the fortunes and restore them as they were at first. 
right? He's saying, bring back the fortunes. Again, we want to think of that inheritance that we were talking about earlier on. And they will be cleansed from their guilt. Their hearts will no longer be polluted with sin. They will no longer desire sin, but that they would be forgiven of their sin. And that the city would have a new reputation. That they would be a glory before the nations. That they would hear of the good done for Jerusalem, right? These nations will hear of the good that the Lord has done for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they too will come to fear the Lord. The nations will come to fear the Lord. This is not just a promise of goodness that's for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but that is a promise of good that will come to the nations. And so they will fear the Lord, the nations, because of the good and the prosperity brought to the city. And so what, what is all of this? What does Jeremiah 32 and 33 have to do with us here and now on this side, in the new covenant, in the I mean, uh, heirs to the New Testament? And so we want to think of the work of Christ. What has Christ done? Right? He came to this world born of a virgin. That he came to this world and uh, he healed people. That he preached the good news. He preached that um, the promise that had uh, the Israelites have been waiting for this whole time is coming now. That the kingdom of God is coming now. It's here and now. This is the promise that Jesus was making in his ministry to the people. That he was going to bring the kingdom um, to earth. And then he went and he died. But the story doesn't end there. He died as a sacrifice for the sin of those who would believe. And not only that, he rose from the grave. And that, the resurrection of Jesus, is the pinnacle of the faith that we have. It's why we're believers. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he goes and uh, Paul is talking about how your faith is worthless if you don't believe in the resurrection. This faith means nothing. Jesus it isn't powerful. Jesus didn't, I mean, like he, he did miracles, but it doesn't mean anything unless he truly rose from the grave. And so if you don't believe that, this faith, you might as well give up now. But because he has risen from the grave, that we have a hope for the resurrection that is coming. And so Christ, he rose from the grave. And in First Corinthians also, he says that Christ is the proof and the forerunner of that resurrection. That um, our natural bodies they are sown into the earth when we die. But our spiritual bodies will be risen in the resurrection, and that is promised through Jesus' resurrection himself. And so these new bodies, these spiritual bodies that we will have, will inherit the kingdom that Jesus has promised, as surely as Jesus truly rose from the grave. And this, this is the restoration that Jeremiah had been promising all along, that it wasn't just when the Israelites uh, came out of their judgment in Babylon all those years ago. It wasn't just uh, just that. It was, you know, Deuteronomy was also promising this future restoration that wasn't just for Israel. It was for all people. And we see now in the New Testament that Jesus has surely promised this, uh, this true and real and future hope that we as believers have in Jesus Christ because he rose from the dead. And we can look forward now to our resurrection with him as heirs to the kingdom that he has made us. And so the Gentiles, right, the nations have been grafted in. We see that in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 12 through uh, 17. 
feel, uh, write this down or turn with me there. Romans chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 12. He says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation not to flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. But if you, by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these sons and daughters of God, for you have not, uh, these are the sons and daughters of God, for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which you cry out, Abba, Father. So it is because of that adoption that we have in Jesus Christ that we would cry out that to our heavenly Father, that we would cry out to him, Abba, Father. This is what Jeremiah was talking about when the fear of the Lord would be placed in our hearts. The fear of the heart that's being, uh, fear of the Lord's placed in our hearts is our adoption as sons, as uh, daughters, as heirs to the promise, as sons and daughters of the Lord Himself. This is the promise that is being fulfilled in this time, and that we have this hope. And so, what is our uh, eternal inheritance? What is that inheritance that we look forward to? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, in the first question, uh, asks, what is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. All the way back at the beginning of the sermon, 20 years ago, uh, I was talking about how we have these ends that we look forward to. These eternal hopes that we look forward to. What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, what, what is the ultimate thing that you're looking forward to? What we as believers are looking forward to is that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the end that we put our hope in. And so, right, we talked about the end, but we're also talking about the here and now. What do we do with this now? Well, God talks about this fear of the Lord that he has placed in our hearts, and this is what consumes us now as we live as heirs to this promise, looking forward to the inheritance that God has for us in the hope of the resurrection, that restoration that he has placed, uh, that he has promised to us. That we live here and now in the fear of the Lord. And so in Hebrews chapters 8 through 12, he says, uh, uh, in chapter 8, um, the author of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant. We've been talking about this new covenant that God is making, this everlasting covenant. And so we have arrived. We have arrived at that eternal covenant that God was making with people. And that is promised through Jesus Christ. Um, that uh, in chapter 9, that we have been redeemed through Christ's sacrifice. In chapter 10, um, Christ's sacrifice was once and for all, and our faith is what makes God's promise, uh, uh, or our faith is sufficient to make us heirs to this promise. Does it take us to become uh, priests who offer sacrifices because Jesus is our high priest? So it is through faith that we have this promise, that we become heirs to this promise. And then in chapter 11, the author of Hebrews um, tells us to look back to the, um, the examples of faith in the Old Testament. Um, look back to Abraham, look back to David, look back to all these folks who were great examples of faith. And so in verses, or, uh, beginning of chapter 12, he then goes and talks about what we actually ought to do with this knowledge, that we're living in the new covenant, living with the fear of the Lord placed in our hearts. And so this is what he says, at the beginning of chapter 12. 
Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's all of those who have been faithful in the Old Testament, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and sin which so easily entangles us. And let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy uh, set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, um, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not uh, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are punished by him, for whom the Lord loves he disciplines, and he punishes every son whom he accepts. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son, for what son is there? whom his father does not discipline. Hebrews 12, 1 through 7 gives us a framework for how we can live in the fear of the Lord, looking forward to that end, looking forward to that promise that God has placed for us. Um, in Hebrews uh, 12, 1, he says, consider the examples of the Old Testament, right? Uh, lay aside every weight. Um, and so we, we live in hope for this. Right, we 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 uh, we think about um, living without sin and living at peace. And so, how we can begin to do this uh, is we can be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. This is what Second Peter three fourteen says. Romans twelve two says, "Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind." In First Corinthians fifteen uh, or sorry, verse fifty eight, He says, "Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the world." of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so it's this first piece, living in fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord looks like being without sin and at peace with the Lord. So that's how we can begin to live in obedience, looking forward to this hope. Um, secondly, uh, we ought to consider the Lord, consider the Lord. And so in Hebrews 12, 3, it says, consider him, consider Jesus, who endured uh, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In Philippians 3, 13 through 14, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are ought to consider the Lord and what he's done. This is how we can live with fear of the Lord here and now. And thirdly, uh, that we ought to live with discipline. Discipline helps us grow. Hebrews 12.5 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. Romans 12.1, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Ephesians 3.14-19 says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he's saying, 
We have to live with discipline. How do we live with discipline? Is by trusting the Holy Spirit. And so again, we have to remember that this fear of the Lord is, in a sense, it is something that we ought to strive for, but we cannot achieve on our own. It is not a work that we ourselves do, but it is a work that the Lord himself does in our heart. And so how do we begin to go and live into this work that God has done for us? We have to rely on him to perform this work in our hearts. And so we talk about what you personally can do um, with this, that you can strive to be without sin, that you can reflect on what the Lord has done, and you can also live in discipline. But what can we do? as Anacostia River Church, um, to live into the spirit of the Lord, how can we do this? We can uphold one another in the spirit. Not only ought we to remind ourselves, but we ought to remind one another of what Christ has done for us. We ought not to just discipline ourselves for its holiness, um, but we ought to help each other in living in discipline to what the Lord has called us to, living uh, above sin, living without sin, living in holiness. Uh, in Galatians 6, and I won't get there, but uh, Galatians 6, um, the Lord uh, commands us through Paul. He says, bear each other's burdens. This is a command from the Lord that we would not be individual islands, that we would not just be Christians on our own, that we would not just be people who are isolated from one another, but that we would be people who are collectively working together, that we would be the body of Christ. This is why it's, I mean, we are called to be members of the church, right? This is why we actually make this engagement to become members of this church so that we can be joined to the body of Christ so that we can live in this fellowship which Christ has called us to, that we can live looking forward to the promise because you can't look forward to the promise by yourself because you're going to give up. We need to rely on one another. We need to bear one another's burdens. Um, And no one of us is going to be the strongest. We need each other. We need to rely on one another to live into the fear of the Lord, to live with discipline, to live in holiness, looking forward to the hope that's set before us. So with those things in mind, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then uh, uh, see you tomorrow. Uh, thank you so much um, for the promise that you have made to us with your blood. Um, thank you for um, the resurrection that you have promised us, um, that you have guaranteed this everlasting covenant that Jeremiah talked about. Um, through your sacraments. God, thank you for what you have promised for us. And I pray that we would live into this promise, that we would not just be casual Christians, that we would not just be individual Christians, but that we would be um, the community of Christ, that we would be uh, representatives together, that we would be evangelistic and uh, disciples um, together. Uh, I pray that we would not um, uh, shy away from talking about spiritual things um, with one another, but that we would um, encourage each other, that we would bear each other's burdens, that we would, uh, again, just live into that hope that you uh, have promised us. Pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.